Hi, this is Love Talk Radio. Welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm sorry about that. We had a little technical difficulty there. Um, I wanted to welcome you all today and do a little quote. Um, and the quote is, life challenges are not supposed to paralyze you. They're supposed to help you discover who you are. And I just think that's a beautiful quote by Bernice Johnson Regan. And um, I think it really makes us think of, you know, when we're struggling, um, you know, what is the purpose of it and what are we all about? So today we have a fantastic show for you. Cheryl Kearney is with us and Cheryl is living with Alzheimer's disease. And so she is going to share with us what her journey has been like and give us some, some tips and insights to help us better prepare for the future and in our lives and those we love who might be touched by this disease. For those of you who are new to the show, I want to give you a brief introduction to the Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's. Rick Phelps, our channel expert living with Alzheimer's, is also going to join us probably later in the show, but he's not with us right at this moment. Rick has been living with the disease since June of 2010, and he's the founder of Memory People on Facebook. Today, I am so glad that you've decided to join us, and hopefully you too will become an advocate on steroids for Alzheimer's disease by speaking out and giving voice so many others will learn the truth. Now, if you are listening by phone, you can always push one to get into my queue to ask a question um, of myself or Cheryl, or if you are online, you can always just type something into the chat box, and I will try to grab that as well. So I want to introduce Cheryl to you. Cheryl, um, I got to know from Memory People, again, which is Rick Phelps' group on Facebook. And Cheryl noticed her memory problems back in 1999, and a seemingly simple task of looking for her daughter's baby pictures became a problem. And so she has come to join the conversation with us today and tell us a little bit more about, you know, how her life has changed and how she is how she's learning to adapt to living with Alzheimer's disease. So Cheryl, are you with us? Yes, I am. Hi, Lori. Hi. So glad you could make it. Um, I'm thrilled Thank to you. Death. To have you with us here today. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? You know, who is Cheryl Kearney? All right. I grew up in a city in Massachusetts. Um, I was the only daughter, um, had a younger and older brother. Okay. And um, and do you still live in Massachusetts now? or? Nope. I live in New Hampshire. In New Hampshire. Okay, wonderful. And do you have any um, certain types of, of hobbies or anything that you really like? Do you have children? Um, yes, I have three children. 
Um, my daughter is 29, and I have two sons, 21 and 25. Okay, great. So yours are just a little hair older than mine. I've got a daughter who's 23. So it's kind of fun to see them in that independent stage when they're really becoming their own person there. And what type of work have you done in the past, Cheryl? Did you work or were Um, you an at-home mom? um, I stayed at home for about eight years, and then I went back to work when my youngest son was about three and a half or four. Okay, and and right now, do you currently work? Yep, I work um, two jobs right now. Okay, and what kind of jobs um, do you mind sharing with us? What type of work nope, do you do? I work as um, a paraeducator in a classroom, in um, in a regular, you know, classroom setting. Um, and then I work as a cashier at a retail store. And because I live on my own, I have to work two jobs. Um, during the school year, I work about 52 and a half hours a week. And, um, yeah, it can be really challenging. Somehow I make it through. Well, that's a a lot of people are working a lot of hours these days. And and 52 and a half hours a week, that's, that's a lot of time. I, I really credit you for doing that and, um, being able to maintain on your own. I I would think that your, your para job's got to be fun with the kids at times. It is. what what age group do you work with? Um, usually elementary, third and fourth, and sometimes second. I prefer to be in elementary. I don't I don't prefer to be in middle school. Oh, I, I understand that one. <laughs> I did a lot of volunteering as my daughter grew up, and elementary was just much easier to deal with. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Very very big difference there. How about hobbies? Do you have any hobbies that you'd like to share with us? Well, whenever I'm home, my computer is on. I have Facebook up. Um, I'm one of the administrators on Memory People Group. Um, I was actually one of the first people on there with Rick back in November of 2010. Um, I also enjoy bowling, um, photography. I have bird feeders outside my apartment that I love to to watch. Um, I love to go on walks, um, things like that. Oh, wonderful. Great. Can you tell us a little bit about when you started noticing your memory problems? I made the the note about you had shared with me when uh, you were looking for baby pictures for your daughter's uh, probably graduation book or something. Yep. I believe it was. Yeah, that that was probably as far back as I can I can get it back to 90 fall of 99 only because I remember my daughter needing um, her graduation pitches, and that was fine. We went and had it done that summer without a problem. But I remember her wanting a baby picture for her yearbook, and I couldn't manage to get that done before the deadline. And, and she was pretty upset with me. We've talked about it since, and she doesn't remember, um, you know, her being upset about it now because it's, you know, it's been quite a while now because she graduated in 2000. Yeah, I I know with my daughter growing up, there's times when she would be just livid at me, and I thought, oh, my gosh, it's going to burn in her for the rest of her life. And then she's like, what are you talking about? I don't even oh, I know. But as a parent, you just start, you're horrified because you feel like you let them down, you know? Yeah. And and, and then it just kind of all blows over. Can you give us some other examples of, of maybe some symptoms that you had that made you start wondering about your memory? Um, well, I think the first symptoms that I can remember um, were my children were complaining that I would always repeat the same things. Like, for example, they'd get home from school, and I would ask them if they had any homework, 
Um, a short time later, I would ask them the same thing. Do you have any homework? Did you do it yet? And I wouldn't remember any of the conversations except the one I was just having with them. Um, once in a while, I would get lost going to places that I would usually know how to get to. Um, almost daily, I would find I would have problems with word retrieval at school um, during lunch with staff, I often would get stuck in the middle of a sentence and I just couldn't find the word. So I'd stay stuck and I couldn't finish the sentence. And it made me feel really bad. And um, I would just say to them that I was having some trouble remembering. Um, at one point, I thought about eating lunch alone because I felt embarrassed and a little stressed out about this happening. But I'm very much a people person. I love to socialize, and I thought it wouldn't be good to isolate myself. So I continued to eat lunch with staff and still had the daily problems remembering words. Well, I think that that's really great that you chose not to isolate yourself because I think a lot of people do um you know, pull themselves out. And I think that social aspect is so important to keep engaged. Do you mind sharing with us, um, Cheryl, how old you were when when you started having memory problems? Everyone's trying to figure out, you know, um, when... 47. 47. Okay, so quite young. And I think, again, I, I appreciate you sharing that with us because so many people um, feel that this is a, a problem of the of the elderly. And it's not. At all? No, it's not. Oh. Definitely not. So thank you so much for for sharing sure. your age. A lot of a lot of people don't like to share age. So. <laughs> no, it doesn't bother me. Great. You know, when you initially noticed some of the changes, um, did you share them with other people? Did you, you know, like when you were talking with people at school um, and family members, uh, what kinds of things did you explain it, or did you kind of joke it away, or? Um, don't remember back then. Um, I just remember my like the conversations with my children and um my then husband complaining about you know, I just couldn't remember anything. And I I just remember, you know, growing up and everything, I never had a really good memory. You know, you just often forget things. Some people had a better memory than others and mine was just never that great. You know, you just dealt with it. But then I started seeing changes in it and people actually bringing it to my attention. Um, but I do remember, like, my hygienist, who I've seen for quite a long time, and I do remember that I I don't remember whether I told her that I was having memory problems or whether she had, in fact, recognized that there was a problem. But I do remember going to this presentation about memory problems and getting... Um, and, you know, the whole um, process of getting diagnosed. And as I sat there, I realized that I probably did have something wrong with my memory. And like I said, my kids and my husband were also telling me how I was always forgetting things, but I wasn't really aware of it. What I was, what I was really aware of was the word-finding issue, the word retrieval. I wasn't necessarily aware of the fact that I was forgetting things. Okay. Okay, so when you kind of got stuck um, in a phrase, um, trying to oh, yeah. figure out a word. Couldn't, couldn't find the word in the middle of a sentence, couldn't even throw in another word to to exchange for it. it. It just, it was the word, I knew what the word was, but I couldn't find it. It was like it was mixed up in my brain somewhere. The 
the filing system was messed up and it was misfiled, so I could not locate it. Okay, I I get that sometimes uh, between my computers and my brain <laughs> because I, you know I'm not all that I, all that I think I'm organized in terms of how I'm going to file something on my computer, but then I surprise myself sometimes and go, well, I guess that wasn't logical at, at that point in time for me. <laughs> anymore oh, yeah. and I can't find it and it's frustrating so I, I can't even imagine what it's like you know to actually live with the disease and and um, have that in your internal computer to be juggling with can you tell us a little bit about your exploratory process on figuring out you know what was wrong and and did you you know how did you start you know with a doctor's process you know and did you go to a regular GP or did you go to a specialist right off? Well, I went to see um, a doctor about an injury to my elbow. And I happened to mention my concern about my memory. I was in the appointment by myself. And this was a doctor that I'd never seen before, but he was part of a practice that I'd been part of for many, many years. And so, um, you know, in reality, he was a stranger to me, but. For some reason, it popped into my head to mention about my memory. And like I said, I was only 47 at the time. And for some reason, he took my concerns very seriously. And I have since switched um, within the practice, and he is my primary care doctor. And that was in um, 2005. Oh, I think that's great. I know with the experience with my mom, you know, she went to her general um, practitioner, and he just kind of blew it off to hormones, and and that was really a big, big mistake, and yep. uh, made it much more difficult to address later on down the road. Because earlier on, she was open to finding out, you know, what was wrong, and then later on, she was so sure because the doctor had told her there was nothing wrong. Um, it was really difficult to address, and things, you know, kept progressing, and so that was it was. Just too bad. But, again, that was a long, long time ago. My mom's been dealing yeah. with her memory problems for 30 years. So oh, I know. I was I was thrilled that he took it seriously, that I didn't have to go from doctor to doctor to a doctor because I've heard of that happening. So I was I was thrilled that he took it seriously enough that he went with it because I've even spoken to him since then and um, several times, and I said, you know, I, I don't know where I would be right now if you hadn't taken me seriously. I don't know whether I would have remembered to mention it to somebody else again mm-hmm. or it would have just been left in that office, and who knows? Yeah. Because <clears throat> you don't know. You're dealing with a memory impairment, so unless somebody is really advocating for you at that point, you have to be the one to remember to to advocate for yourself. You know, that's a that's a good point, you know, in terms of going to the doctor. Um, you know, if you go by yourself and you are having memory problems or thinking that you are, um, you know, should you really bring somebody else with you to be able to help you get all the details? Because I would imagine that that would be extremely difficult. I mean, it's confusing as it is. You know, yep. when you when you are tracking everything, <laughs> to follow all the directions and stuff. Yeah, data overload. Yeah, so really bringing an advocate probably wouldn't be, you know, a second pair of ears wouldn't be a bad idea if somebody is open to doing that. Um, oh, absolutely, or one of those small tape recorders. It, yeah. You know, just let the doctor know that that's what you need because you're not going to remember everything that they're telling you. 
Exactly, exactly. Now, when you went through the process, do you have any recollection of how you, you know, physically and emotionally felt kind of before you went to the doctor and then after in terms of a comparison? Um, I think that I was really frightened um, that what I was experiencing could be Alzheimer's. And I think I remember actually making a joke to my children, oh, God, I hope I don't have Alzheimer's, and, and just joking about it because, I didn't think that's what it was, not at all. Uh Uh-huh. You know, I knew that my brain wasn't functioning right, but I figured it must be something else. Like other people, it was, I was way too young, you know. How could that be? Um, I guess it was almost a relief to have a diagnosis because I felt almost as though I was losing my mind without having a diagnosis. Sure, and that, you know, I hear that quite frequently from people. It is just like you're losing it and yep. it, because you, it it doesn't make sense, and when you don't have recollection, you can't put put the uh, the, the pictures together, you know? No, and of, things don't make sense, and, and you can't figure out why it doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. Now, do you remember going through the testing process? Um, well, I think my, my regular doctor, when I went there for my elbow, um, I think they started with blood work and maybe an MRI, and then they sent me to a neurologist. And after spending some time with the neurologist, he said that I needed to have more tests so that he could rule out um, EOAD, or early onset Alzheimer's, which I believe is when you are diagnosed with Alzheimer's before the age of, I don't know, it was 62 or 65, one of those. Mm-hmm. Um I guess that I didn't do so well on the mini mental test he gave me. Um, I think that I had a sleep-deprived EEG, blood work, PET scan, and a sleep study. Um, I was told when I went to get the results that my PET scan resembled an Alzheimer's patient. I actually went home on the computer and and Googled it and, and remembered seeing the PET scan and the neurologist, and I was like, oh, yeah, yep, looks just like mine, that's not a good thing. Oh, um, and I think that the PET scan, I think that was the particular test as well as the mini mental testing. Um, I think that's how we came up with the diagnosis. Okay. And did you share the results with your family right away? Well, my um, my then husband was there with me at the at the doctor's appointment. My children were at home, but they knew, you know, we were getting the results of the testing. Um, Two of my best friends and my mom were also waiting for the results. Um, And like I said before, I was was relieved to have a diagnosis um, and in a way not at all surprised by it, although hearing the words EOAD from the doctor still devastated me because the words were like there and there was like no escaping them. Um, my husband and children, they didn't believe the diagnosis, so I guess you could say they were in denial. Um, my children were 23, 19, and 15 at the time of my diagnosis. Um, I just, it was just, um, six years ago the other day that my diagnosis was made. Um, my feeling at the time I was diagnosed, um, well, what happened was I was given a script for Aricept. And I was also told I should get a second opinion because this was just a local neurologist 
and he said, because of your age, you should get a second diagnosis, but this is the only diagnosis I can come up with. So I did. I got a second diagnosis, a neurologist in Boston out of Brigham and Women's. And when I went to see him, um, which took me about five or six weeks to get an appointment, um, my feeling at this time was to believe the first diagnosis. And I, my thought was, if I start thinking that this was incorrect, and then if the second neurologist gave me the same diagnosis, I'd be devastated all over again. And I just couldn't do that to myself again. So I, for those five or six weeks that I had to wait for the second appointment, second appointment, I kept saying, okay, it's EOAD unless you hear anything else. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we'll find out more. But when I went to the second neurologist, I think he's the co-director of neurology at Brigham and Women's. Um, I actually had trouble getting an appointment with him. I remember that. And they said he wasn't taking any new um, patients. And they said, why did you need to see him? And I told them I was 47, needed a second opinion. And they said, have your first neurologist fax a letter over to us and we will call you and you can make an appointment. So I called my neurologist right away. They faxed over a letter and I got an appointment. I I believe I got a call that day and I made the appointment. So I, I remember that, that it was sort of a little bit of a process to get me there. But anyway, when I went to see the second neurologist, I brought the testing results, and he sat down, probably did the mini mental thing again with um, the clock and all kinds of, you know, little stories he's going to tell me and names and words that I should remember. And then I believe um, they want you to start at 100, subtract 7, and math has never been my strong thing, so... I think doing that without a memory impairment would have been a struggle. But I remember the second diagnosis he gave me was what they call amnesic-type mild cognitive impairment, um, and which all I was told and all my research I've done means if I go with the MCI diagnosis, it means I don't have dementia, which means my brain does not function normally for my age. But it means, like for the most part, like I'm living on my own, I'm working. For the most part with MCI, it doesn't impact your life as much or to the degree as EOAD. So um, first neurologist who put me on Aricept had terrible leg cramps that took me off. Second neurologist tried it again. Um, the same effect took me off it. Um, I'm now taking Razodyne. Um, I don't really know which diagnosis is the correct, and for a while I drove myself crazy. And um, where I am six years after the both diagnosis is, um, I don't care so much about the diagnosis anymore. It's more about how I'm functioning in my everyday life and what I can do to make that easier for me. You know, Cheryl, I think that's a wonderful decision on your part because it's, you know, society labels. I mean, that's what we do. We label everything and we try to categorize it. And, yep. you know, we're we're all moving parts and things change and science yep. isn't perfect. So I, I think it's smart to not focus on the label but focus on your life 
and focus yep. on, on your abilities and making yep. things easier. So I think oh, that's absolutely fantastic decision. It was uh, sort of a process I had to go through. It wasn't. <laughs> oh, it definitely I'm, wasn't an overnight kind of thing. Yeah, I well, I can I can imagine it, it would be a struggle, and then to try to I mean, you sound very positive and upbeat, yeah. and like you're really embracing life. And um, yep. anytime somebody gets uh, you know bad news, I mean, that's not the first place we go is the happy camp. You know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And then when you get two different diagnoses, I mean. Which one do you believe? And then at that point, you go, okay, best out of three. Do you go to a third neurologist? I mean, what do you do at that point, you know? <laughs> yeah, you can really drive yourself crazy by trying to oh, absolutely. De- deny the problem altogether yep. and find someone and, and, to tell you everything's okay. Right. At some point, I had to say, okay, this is what you're dealing with. It's a memory impairment of some kind, you know, something isn't right there. Mm-hmm. And that's the only thing that I can come up with. But now you just have to find ways of dealing with it, period. <laughs> since, your, since your diagnosis, have you made some changes in your life? And would you mind sharing those with us, if you have? Oh, yeah, quite a few. <laughs> um, I'm trying to make very positive changes in my life. Um, one was about a year after my diagnosis, um, I left a very verbally abusive marriage after 27 years. So that is why I live on my own and I work two jobs. Um, Most of my days are pretty good, but then again, I could forget some things that are lacking. Um, I want to say some of the things that happen in my life I call like bumps in my road. Um, I'd say the plus side of being diagnosed with a um, memory impairment is um, I'm just so more appreciative of my life. Oh, that's a blessing. Absolutely. That's a that's a real gift. And I think so many people these days are not appreciative of what they do have um before oh, yeah. them, and and who's in their life and, and all of those types oh, yeah. of things. I don't I, have I, I don't have um I don't have time for negativity. I don't have time for all these whining and all these people in bad moods. I just don't have time for it. And I have a lot of patience. It's the only way you can work with kids. I'll work with the public at my other job. and um, But I don't have time for all this negative stuff and, and people just being grumpy over nothing. Come on, give me a break. <laughs> yep, yep. No, I, I get that. I, with my mom's journey of 30 years, too, it's totally changed my life and what I look oh, yeah. at and what I appreciate. And, you know, the big things really don't matter to me at all anymore. It's the little things in my life that are really important to me. And oh, yeah. and people go, well, how can that be? And I'm like, it's really simple, you know. It's it's kind of like, right. you know, if you had a natural disaster, you know, hit your life. You know, when I was in real estate, for example, we we would tell people when they were struggling about maybe um, making a move and having to move to a, a smaller or a different place, we'd always say, well, you know, we're going to do the the ten minute theory. And that is you've got 10 minutes before a tornado or tsunami is going to hit. If you walk into your house, what are you going to grab? What's really important? And it really puts things in perspective that the material things that we have thought have been so important for so many years 
are no longer. And most people go after, you know, they'll go after maybe their, their money and their checkbook and their keys, but most of them go after their loved ones, their pets, and their photographs. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it's it's a real, real simple, basic thing. But I, I like you, too, focus on the positive. I don't care to be around the negative energy. It just no, it drains, I, I have, drains me. I I have too much that I want to do in my life. And while I can still do it, I plan on doing it. And I feel like sometimes I'm in a rush to get it done because I don't know when symptoms are going to get worse. And, you know, it's just very unpredictable. Mhm. Yeah. Well, and if and if something negative happens, I always ask what's the lesson? You know, what is the lesson um in in the story? You know, why is this happening to me and what yes. am I supposed to learn and how can I improve not just my life but somebody else's as absolutely. well in terms of sharing that. Oh, so, absolutely. My job is a cashier. Some people that work with me there they're like don't the customers drive you crazy? I'm like, no, I get paid for socializing. And the way I look at it is I might be the only person that that customer that I have that day, one of those customers, I might be the only person that that person talks to that day. I might be the only smiling face, the only person that said a kind word to them all day. And that's just how I look at it. Well, And that's huge. It's huge. And I think people have forgotten the impact that we have on one another and yeah. and how important that is. Because, I mean, you hear stories all the time of just someone smiling or talking to somebody or, or stopping to help, how it's been life-changing for that other yep. person. Yeah. So, I mean, what's wrong with just taking a second and out of your day and helping somebody? Yep. Being nice. Being nice. Right. Yep. Just common so, respect for other people. Can you share with us, Cheryl, um, some of the most difficult things that you've had to deal with regarding the disease itself? Um, let's see. One of the most difficult things for me to deal with has been my frustration when my cognition is declining. I have a lot of patience um, with other people, but sometimes I lose patience with myself. Um, I guess the lack of patience and my frustration can come from people not being able to understand what it's like to live with a memory impairment. They just don't get it because I guess in a lot of ways um, there are people at both my jobs that don't have a clue. Uh-huh. And I guess in a way that's fine. Um, I really enjoy reading a good book, but I have had to give up on that because I can't really follow a storyline from page to page. Um, that happens because of my short-term memory problems. Okay. Um, I can still watch a movie. I can still, you know, watch TV. Um, I guess mostly I can read magazines. I can read, like, chicken soup books. And I can read the same chicken soup book pretty much for many years because I can pick it up six months later and it's a new book for me. Yeah, well, that's some the, of the it, stories I might read might sound a little familiar to me, and and I'll say, okay, yeah, I can remember a little bit of this. Uh huh. Okay. How about at work? Have you? Um, can you tell us maybe how it's affected you at work? Um, it takes me a while to learn something new. Um, I don't function very well 
I've noticed that I don't function very well at multi-step verbal directions or abrupt changes to my schedule. Like um, a year or two ago, I got in and my case manager needed me to cover a classroom, and I thought I was going to have a meltdown. I was in a classroom that I didn't work in, children I did not know, and a routine I was unfamiliar with. And then another paraprofessional came in, and she did what I was going to be doing because she saw that I was just not going to be able to do it. Uh-huh. And I think I got together with my case manager, and she said, how was it? I said, wasn't so good. So we need to talk about this. <laughs> yeah. So if I have changes to my schedule, I need to have some verbal interaction with my case manager or an email Letting me know what's coming up. That's all I need. Just something okay. letting me know the change is going to happen. Um, at home, I can lose things. Sometimes I probably forget what I've lost, so that's okay. Um, <laughs> you know, I can look for the remote for the TV, and then I look over and it's right next to me. So pff, why I'm still looking for it, I don't have a clue, but I just sit here and laugh. Uh huh. You know, what can you do? Um with my family, I'm not really sure if my children realize how hard some days are for me. I think that I need to start sharing more of my daily struggles with them. Um, I've recently realized that I probably need to do that because I went car shopping with my daughter, and I was the one that needed the vehicle, and she went shopping with me, and the vehicle I was needing to trade in had a flat tire, and the dealership we went to, filled it up with air, and we drove back to my daughter's apartment because we were done um, car shopping for the day. And I dropped her off at her apartment and was maybe maybe 10 minutes away. And from the time we left the dealership to her apartment, when she got out of her car, my car, she said, well, talk to you soon. And, you know, we did all this kind of stuff and talked. And um, she said, Mom, just remember to get your tire, the air checked in your tire, get your tire checked. And I said, Jen, I don't remember which tire it was. She said, Mom, we just left the dealership. I said, Jen, you don't understand what I'm dealing with. I said, sometimes it's moment to moment. Mm -hmm. So she told me which tire it was because I couldn't remember which side of the car it was. So as I drove back from her apartment to my apartment, I stopped at a red light and I jotted down some notes. And because I was thinking in my head, why doesn't she get it? So when I got home, I started writing. And when I, something really bothers me, I journal about it. Mm-hmm. And if it's related to a memory impairment, I'll post it onto memory people and have a lot of activity on it. So this is one of those things that I posted and got a, a lot of activity on. And it was like one of those light bulb moments because I said to myself, why doesn't she get it? And as I'm driving home, I'm like, duh, she doesn't get it because you spend all your energy when you're with your kids trying to cover up the symptoms so that they don't worry about it. So I need to try to take some steps into changing that. I haven't quite done that yet. Um, That's going to be a process. Yeah, that that's hard because I know even with my folks, you know, when I was carrying, my dad had brain cancer with, with my mom with the Alzheimer's, and 
And I found myself in the role of covering up, and I didn't even realize I was covering it up, and I would get so angry sometimes at their friends going, why don't they understand? Why do yep. they ask them to do this? And I'm thinking, well, because they don't have a clue. Because yep. you're, you're really not talking honestly about what it's like. And right. you're, See, you're I don't trying want to... I don't want to, I have one child that lives, my 25-year-old son lives out of state. My youngest son that's in college, he lives about 10 minutes from me, and my daughter lives about 10 minutes from me. But, you know, and I talk to them all the time and, and see them, but um, very close to all my kids. But, again, I don't want to, they're young, and I don't want to necessarily have this affect their daily lives, mm-hmm. you know. Um like I said, I probably need to change some things I'm doing. I just haven't figured all that out yet. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's that's part of it, too, trying to figure out the whole steps kind of thing. I know that I just had dinner with my two children and my son's girlfriend last um, Wednesday night, I believe it was, because my daughter and my youngest one, they both have July birthday, so we went out to dinner. And I remember having dinner with them and sitting there and having dinner with them Oh, actually, my son's girlfriend wasn't there. She had to work. And um, I remember, you know, you have those conversations and they flow really well. Not with me so much sometimes because I just, I still remember having those conversations with them just the other night and, you know, couldn't find that word, you know, and said to them, well, yeah, I just can't find that word again. You know how that goes. And, you know, we just go on to something else and... Now the sentence starts, so one of them starts talking about something else. Yeah, well, and it's it's important, you know, that you you still want to fit in and feel comfortable, and you know, it's it's a fine line of how much you share and how much you don't, and 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 how much you struggle, and it's right. It's it's not a it's not an easy thing to do, you know, because we all want to be accepted for who we are and there's no matter how loved we are by people we still have that fear of Absolutely. being not understood or rejected and and you know I think that's just something very very innate within us but I I also feel it's extremely important that we talk openly about this and I think that's you know we're coming of age with this disease and there's so much more um, going on, honest conversations where, uh, you know, when we talk honestly about it, we realize we're not alone. And I think that decreases the fear that people yep. have. Oh, absolutely. The- yeah. I I, um, I think about when I got the diagnosis and I think about like my my really two good friends at the time that I still have. And I thought of them as being supportive. And then when I look at that now, I don't really think that that's true. I don't want to say that in a raw, in a bad way, but it's because they don't get it either. I know mm-hmm. one of my best friends, when I talk to her about things sometimes, she'll go, oh, that happens to me sometimes too. And can I tell you how much I hate that? Yeah, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, a common thing we do no matter what the issue is because yep. we don't we're trying to be supportive and trying yep. to make the person not feel alone and we don't know what else to say and yeah, so that's, I, that's probably true and so i don't think it's meant as a as an insult it's, it's it's kind of almost like 
you know, when you go to a funeral, no one ever knows what to say. And so yeah. we all say, that, you know, we're sorry for your loss. Um, so I think part of it might be that with people who are actually living with us, if they can give us some things to say or how to deal with it, you know, what would make you feel better? What would make you right. feel more comfortable? What would be an appropriate response? Because we really don't have a clue. You know, yeah. we're, just, we're just trying um, to be it's supportive. It's a learning thing, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, as one of, um, as you know, one of the main reasons that I wanted to do this show was to really bring light to the everyday heroes and change makers, you know, in our world. And one of the first steps, of course, is speaking out and, and giving voice and being heard. And again, that's what you're doing today, Cheryl. And I can't thank you enough um, for being for being part of the show. I, I really feel blessed um, to have you with us today. Um, do you have maybe top uh, top three recommendations for caregivers on what they could or should do differently that might help people with memory loss? Anything um, come to mind? Okay. Well, I would suggest to caregivers to try not to take away skills from the ones who you're caring for, whether it's in the healthcare business or whether you're taking care of somebody at home, but just don't take away a skill that they are still able to do. Um, perhaps the person you're caring for gets frustrated easily because, like me, sometimes they are unable to do it correctly. But don't always think that they are unable to do the task. Perhaps it just needs to be explained to them a little differently. Or perhaps you just need to show it to them, maybe several times, so they can copy it. Um, I know that takes a lot more patience, a lot more time, but in the end, the result could be the patient's happiness. Um, I feel this, in turn, could make life easier and happier for both the patient and um, the caregiver. Um, I would say when spending time with a memory-impaired person, please treat them with respect and dignity. Don't belittle what they say. Um, it's important to them. Make them feel that it is important to you. I would also say that having a consistent routine, I know it helps me function better. If I get up in the morning and I get up, like I have acid reflux, so I get up, I take my pill, I wait a half an hour. Actually, I set the timer for 30 minutes. 30 minutes is up. I have breakfast. If after breakfast I forget to take my medication and instead I take a shower, I then run the risk of forgetting to take my medication. So everything has to be done in an orderly fashion. It helps me to function. Um, it's also helpful if things are well organized, clutter reduced, things that are used quite frequently are not moved around a lot, but left in the same place to make it easier to find. I often say that there's a lot of benefits to living alone and having a memory impairment because I live alone. If anything's going to get moved in my apartment, it's going to get moved by me. Um, so if something gets moved, I go, oh, who moved it? Oh, duh, you live alone. <laughs> so, you know, there's those moments that you go, oh, okay, that was me. All right. You know, I've, I've thought about, like, rearranging some things in my apartment, but I think I moved in. I think I moved in here about two and a half years ago, and I think about, like, moving things around. And then I go, well, you know, it might be something small in a cabinet, but 
I'm not sure that that will work because in the long run, I may remember where I moved it when I first moved in. I won't remember where I moved it a week ago. So then you have, you know, issues with that. Yeah, well, and that makes sense, and I, and I think that's great that you're aware of that, too. And even though that you might want to change things up, you know, you know to live your life on a daily basis, it might not be the best thing to do. Um, the other thing I, I liked that you said about not taking away skills that people have, you know, it kind of reminds me of, you know, when you're teaching a, a child to make a bed, or or go potty, you know. We're yep. so thrilled, it, and it's not perfect, but everybody's happy. <laughs> That's know? right. Because uh, because they're trying and they're doing the best they can, and they feel empowered. And I, I personally think we have to get rid of a lot of this judgment, and um, you know that we think things have to be done in a certain way, and they don't. You know no, what I do. No. What I do don't have to be perfect. <laughs> no, no, and and most of the time they're not. You know, I do some nope. um, age sensitivity training. I go into the high schools, and, and one of the exercises that is so funny that we do, and it happens every time I do it, I have them put on a pair of ski gloves, and then there's coins on the table, and they're supposed to pick the coins straight up. And um, they can't with the gloves, and the gloves are there to kind of show that um, – if somebody has arthritis, you know, and so yep. they're they're trying to pick these coins up and they can't do it because the, they're ski gloves and they're thick. And in every class, it's never failed. There's one one student that will scoop the um, coins up in their hands and then they slide them over to the edge of the table and then they catch them in the other glove and they say, "I did it!" And then all the other students scream out, "Well, you didn't do what she said." And right. I think, but, but that's perfect because it, life is about adapting. That's true. It's not about how we do something. You know, it, it's not about the steps. It's about accomplishing the task. Right. And I, I want to say that I probably use that with my students, that if they are, they are able to do something, I'm not doing it for them. Like if I have a student that, you know, they can get the ideas flowing and they have issues with, getting the ideas on the paper, if they will dictate it to me, I will write it for them. Mm-hmm. But if I have another student that is pretty, that they are very capable of writing it, I will not scribe for them. Sure. Yeah. Because I da- will not take that skill away from them. Yeah. When my daughter was, I think, in fifth grade, she would come home, and, and I remember my mom talking about the new math even when I was in school, and she'd go, Dean, get in here. I don't know this new math, you know. <laughs> and, and and then my daughter was in fifth grade, and she would come home just in tears going, I don't understand this math, and she just couldn't get it. And I said, okay, well, let's do it this way. You know, let's add it up differently. You know, there's more yep. than one one way to get to No, no, the teacher says it has to be done this way. I'm like, honey, it, it, it's about getting the answer. It's about completing the That's path. That's right. And so, you know, I met with the teacher and I said, can you please, please explain to these kids that there is more than one way. I understand you're teaching a method, right. but not everybody gets the method. That's Truly about the answer, and so that's right. It was kind of an amazing, amazing, amazing process to me. Here, oh yeah. um, Do you have any advice for um, 
caregivers, you know, kind of a best advice for a caregiver to share with us, you know, uh, if if they're maybe worried about someone's memory or maybe themselves, what should they what should they do? What would you recommend? Well, I'd say if you probably think there's a problem, or if somebody in your family or friends are saying, you know, maybe you should have this looked at, that probably you probably need to have it looked at by a doctor and start with your primary care doctor. And if you, like you were talking about, Lori, maybe if you're not confident about going by yourself, then have somebody go with you. Yeah, I think I think that's really wise. It's it's just so overwhelming all the details and and what I've heard, you know, there really isn't a standard practice for how someone is told and what information they're gotten or given and it's it's kind of all over the board depending on who you go see. If it's a general um practitioner or if it's a neurologist, you know, up front or you know, or maybe the 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 GP has knowledge in that area, um, but it's you know when I've interviewed people, it's just been all over the board. From well, they said the words and then they said goodbye, you know, yep. well, in six months, and you know, it's like, well, what does that mean, and where do I go to others that have really sat and explained that you know this is not a, a life-threatening process. Yes, there's going to be changes, and here's the support services to tap into, and this is the game plan. And those are two big variables in terms of... Oh, yeah. No, they they give you nothing. They just give you the diagnosis and next patient. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's got... Hopefully that will be changing here um, oh. in the in the future with, you know, the, the NAPA, the National Alzheimer's Program that they're putting together. Hopefully they'll have yeah, some... They... Reg- they need Better to change that, but that needs to start right with the medical school that they're, you know, the upcoming doctors and nurses, they've got to train them right away to, to realize that. I agree. I agree. Um, it's not I mean, just... You don't, you don't give somebody a, a life-changing diagnosis for something that there is no cure for, for something that is going to change your life tremendously and not give them, like, a toolkit that's going to help them cope. Mm-hmm. There, you know, there there wasn't anything that they gave you. And I don't know whether, I'm not sure why that happens. My guess is they don't know what to do for you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're trained to give you medication to help you, but they don't know what else to do for you. Yeah, the the social side of it and the tapping yeah. into the resources. I know for myself I've had, um, and this isn't memory loss, but I've had a couple of lumps in my breasts. And, and, you know, it's really scary. And, you know, they go in and they do the test and then they do another test. And it's, you know, three and four weeks out every time you do a test. And time's ticking and I'm just pulling out my gray hairs as I'm going. You know? Oh, my gosh. And, you know, and it's horrible because you have to wait so long for an appointment like you did for your second um, appointment. It's just ridiculous yep. because all that stress is just, you know, exhausting to say the least. Yep. And, and your mind wanders and then you get on the Internet and you start Googling. And, of course, we only pick up the negative stuff on anything, you know, with that. And, and it's just it's devastating. And then. You know, all of a sudden, you know, like for me, I with with this lump, I mean, everything was fine, but it was like three months of just total stress, and it, you know, we we can't with it with memory loss in particular. I mean, we we can't add that stress 
to people going through this. Um, it just because it, it it just makes it so much more difficult to deal with. Oh yeah, that. stress is not something that's that's our best friend. That's for sure. Yep. Yeah. Do you have any words of wisdom for someone who has just gotten diagnosed? Um, can I hold, can I put you on hold just for one second? I just thought of something sure. I just want to write sure. it down real quick that sure. I'm going to share with you in a minute. Hold sure. on. Sure. Not a problem. So when Cheryl is, well, she puts us on hold, I am just going to um, read us uh, another little quote, one that I just think is, is very interesting. And it's, it says, the hardest arithmetic to master is the one that enables us to count our blessings. The hardest arithmetic to master is the one that enables us to count our own blessings. And that's by Eric Hoffer. And I just thought that is so good because so oh, many like times we just don't appreciate what it is that we have. That is so true. That is so true. Could you just um, repeat your last question, Laurie, please? Oh, sure. I was just wondering if you had any words of wisdom for somebody who's just got diagnosed. Well, I guess what I can say what's works for me, um, I guess I wake up every morning with a positive attitude. And I think what I said earlier, I try to avoid negative people. I just don't have time for it. Can't waste my energy on them. Mm-hmm. I have too much that I want to do in my life, and I just don't know how much time that I'll be able to do it. Um, I'd say the big thing is to reduce the stress in your life as much as you can. Surround yourself with people who will be there to support you and who will love you no matter what. Um, I would say take one day at a time. Don't look at the big picture, but small things one at a time. Um Try not to take on too much at once. Enjoy your life to the fullest. Um, And again, try to do things that give you the most joy. As hard as it may be sometimes, try very hard to keep a positive attitude. Um, I think that attitude is, is very important. I think it affects how other people interact with you, and it affects, you know, everything. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Would you mind? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Can I just add something? Um, Sure. I guess some of that, which is what I just said to you, was something that I just jotted down. It might be a little bit repetitive, but I think over the past maybe year or two, I've realized that there are at least three things in my life that I know increases my symptoms. I don't know how long it took me to recognize it because that in itself is a memory issue. Um, too much stress in my life, big thing, uh-huh. um, adds to my symptoms, incredible. Um, too many work hours, I was actually two and a half years ago working 60 hours, seven days a week, as opposed to six days a week, 52 and a half hours, so I had to cut back, but I could only cut back so much, um, and the other thing is just doing too much. I was working 52 and a half hours. I was um, bowling in a bowling league, and I was coaching a bowling league. And this past spring, I just gave up coaching um, after 20 years because I needed to have less scheduled time, less structured time. I need more 
free time to just do what I feel like doing. And then my bowling league, which I enjoy, I'm going to give that up in the fall also so that I can have less scheduled time again. So. Well, I think that's really important, um, you know, that you shared that with people. I mean, that's fantastic information uh, for for people to understand, both people living with the disease and caregivers as well in terms but that, of... But those two things are really hard to give up because it's hard to give up something. It's easy to give up something that you don't enjoy doing, but it's all that much harder to give up things that you really enjoy and you really put a lot of heart and soul into it. So, um, especially the coaching that I've enjoyed for 20 years, I still will miss doing that. But I just have to do what's best for me right now. Yeah, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, that's been a big, big part of your life. And, and, you know, I don't know if there's a way that you can still go up there and and help out when when it's appropriate by working with other coaches or not. Yeah. if it's just best just to stay away, and, and you're the only one that'll be able to figure that out, and yeah. I'd imagine every situation is different, and and same with bowling, um, if you're not going to do it all the time, and I don't know if it would be more stressful to be called in as a filler um, when yeah. they when they need somebody too, but I'm sure you've given thought to that as well, and we'll do whatever works for you, and you should do, yeah. you know what works that's, that's for you, yeah. So, Cheryl, I again, I appreciate you sharing all this information with us. I was wondering, you know, if you wouldn't mind sharing with our audience, you know, how you are making a difference with dementia. And I know, um, you know, just by being on the show is going to help a lot of people, um, you sharing your story and them being able to hear your activity on memory people I know has helped me immensely along with others, but why don't you just, you know, put it in your own words, you know, what you're doing uh, to help others. Well, I guess one of the ways I'm helping others is by sharing my story. Um, I've been asked, I'm active through the Alzheimer's Association, part of, um, I forget what it's called, early onset group. Okay. And um, I've spoken at two um, Alzheimer's-sponsored events called Mapping Through the Maze down in Massachusetts. I've done that twice. Um, And you just basically sit as a memory-impaired person or with a caregiver, and you answer questions. Sometimes they're prepared questions, which work out really well. And then there are other questions that the audience will will have for you. and like you said, I'm very active on memory people. Um, if I'm having a difficult day or, or days, um, I might post on memory people how I'm feeling. Sometimes I'm actually not active on there at all. So it all depends on how I'm doing. Um, then I am the one receiving the love and support. And although I would prefer to, to give the support rather than be the one needing it, um it's just not a role I'm happy being in. I guess you'd rather be the caregiver than the patient, you know. Um, we're almost a 1,000 members strong, and I want to say before Memory People on uh, Facebook that Rick Phelps started, um, I didn't have a support group. There isn't anything for me here. Um, I had hardly anyone to talk to who really understood what it was like to live with a memory impairment. Um that made me feel alone and isolated. I don't feel that way anymore. 
that is just a big piece that's just been lifted since oh, that's November last year. Very neat. That's very um, neat. I am an Alzheimer's advocate. I've traveled to Washington, D.C. over the past two years to attend the policy forum conferences. Um, the last day we meet with legislators to ask them um, the ones from our home states, and we let them know what policies that we need or acts that we need them to jump on and and um, support. Um, and we do that by sharing our own personal stories. Um, I know in May when I got back from Washington, D.C., I was looking for some paperwork related to my job and getting my recertification as a para done, and I stumbled across a journal that I had written some six years ago that I had forgotten even existed, let alone that I still had it. And although I cried when I read it because the journal was written six years ago when I got the diagnosis of EOAD, um, it then dawned on me that I had to make a video about it. And public speaking is not something that I've ever enjoyed doing. I've always avoided it. But when it comes to this disease, um, I have to put that in the background and say, well, suck it up and do it because it means too much to me to have somebody else suffer and not have the support that they need. I think that is wonderful. And I've seen you on uh, on video, Cheryl, and you do a fantastic job. So you really have nothing to worry about. You really <laughs> Thank you, uh, come off very sincere and just, you know, this is me. And that's what it's about. It's, you know, people don't want to hear all the fluff. They want to hear, you know, what's it really like from someone who really knows. Because the rest of us out here, we're just guessing. Yep. You know, and and I've been with this, you know, like I said, 30 years with my mom, but I'm I'm still guessing. I think my guesses are getting a little better, you know, <laughs> over time. But but it but I still don't know, and so it's just so nice to hear um, the spoken word or the written word from those actually living and breathing the disease. So I, you know, I totally applaud you for what you're doing, and I, I again, I can't thank you enough for sharing your story with us here on Alzheimer Speaks Radio. If people are interested in contacting you, Cheryl, are you open to uh, them reaching out to you at all? Sure, they could um, reach me on my email, and it's bowl, B-O-W-L, dash, coach, C-O-A-C-H, at comcast.net. Okay, wonderful. So that's bowl, and then a dash, and then coach at comcast.net. Well, that is thank- correct. Well, thank you again for being with us, Cheryl. I'm going to go ahead and wrap up the show then. Well, Laurie, I want to thank you for asking me to be a part of your show today. Well, I, I appreciate you being with us. Thank you again. So for the You're rest welcome. Of, great. For the rest of our listeners here, I hope you'll help us spread the word about our show today. And you can just go to our homepage and you can like us, you can friend us. Um, you can email, you can tweet about us, tell your friends and coworkers, because, again, we need your help to get awareness spread. Our next show is going to be on the 29th, and Sherry Fisher and Tom O'Neill are both caregivers, and they are going to talk about shifting caregiving from crisis to comfort. 
And then on August 3rd, we're going to have Gerald Cummings and Mary Frances Price, who are both attorneys. One is from California and one is from Minnesota, and they're going to be talking about planning for the future on estate planning. And then on the 4th of August, I can't believe we're going to be in August already pretty soon, is Joe Skillian, author of Confessions of a Caregiver, When Alzheimer's Comes to Your Home. So I hope you'll be able to join us in the future episodes. If not, you can always listen to them because they are archived. So again, just go to the homepage. And if you're memory impaired and interested in telling your story to the world, please email me. I would love to talk to you, and maybe you can be our next guest. Again, this is just a laid-back, comfortable session. All we're doing is talking on the phone, um, like good friends visiting and just sharing sharing your experience. So I hope you decide to come back and become an advocate on steroids for Alzheimer's disease. And we look forward to having great conversations, learning, laughter, as we maneuver this roller coaster called dementia on Friday, July 29th at 7 p.m. That's central time, so it'd be 8 p.m. Eastern time or 5 p.m. Pacific time for Real Talk, Shifting Caregiving from Crisis to Comfort. And remember, please focus on the three simple things your memory chip teaches you. Are they safe? Are they happy? Are they pain-free? And you can get your free memory chip at www.alzheimersspeaks.com. Have a blessed day and enjoy your weekend. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.